Hello and welcome to Into the Mythic. I'm Leanne O'Donnell and I'm here on the southwest coast of Ireland with Polo Colmon. This is a series of podcasts where we explore Ireland's ancient myths from new perspectives and see what resonances they have for us today. This week's story is a great yarn. It takes us right back into the mythological myths of Ireland's past, giving us a narrative to explain where we, the Irish, came from and how we ended up here. And if you've ever wondered why there are so many stories in Irish culture that have the sense in them that we're sharing this island with magical unseen neighbours, well, today's story offers some rich context for those beliefs. Well, everybody tries to come up with... Every culture tries to come up with, with a, a story of where they're from, the origins, and we are no exception in Ireland. Um, and it comes in the form of a whole variety of versions of a book or a story or a collection of stories called Lara Gowala Naharan, the book of the invasion or the taking of Ireland, uh, which was told orally for many hundreds of years and by about the 8th century was uh, began to be written down and compiled. So it's quite contradictory and confusing and um, jumps here and there all over the place. But the, the basic story is, is a wonderful tale. So this is our story about where Irish people came from and yeah. why we're here on this island. Exactly, yes. yeah. And there's a lot of truth in the myths as well because, uh, you know, in, in the story you'll hear they come from the south and if you... If you if you follow through in a much more historical, genealogical or genetic way, uh, waves of people did come from, from the different pl- uh, areas, different directions that are described in, in this story, Lara Gavala Naharan, or in the book. Uh, so so that's, it's, it's myth b- built on truth, containing the kernel of truth. Yeah. Um, and as you say, this kind of an origin story, a, a creation story that we, we need to understand who we are and why we're here. Yes, and why we are the way we are. Wow, it'd be great if you could explain all that yeah. with one story. <laughs> <laughs> Just hang on, okay. stay tuned and you'll find out. <laughs> OK, well, t- tell us the story. Then. Well, our story begins really in um, northern Spain, most likely, somewhere like Galicia. Uh, and there was a king there called Mil. Now, his brother, I, uh, had earlier um, left, he had built a tower called the Tower of Eber and from the top of that tower he saw this distant land, green and beautiful, verdant, um, which is Ireland and he, he became obsessed with it and he sailed to it and he never returned. So that was very strongly in their, in their mythology or you know, their culture. Uh, but Mill anyway was, was, a, was, was the king of this kingdom uh, and a powerful man but times were bad, there was a great drought and he had seven sons, the eldest of whom was Amorgan who was a seer who took after his uncle. Um, and he began to have visions uh, of this beautiful land as well. And the drought I mentioned was, was causing havoc, devastation. The cattle were dying, the crops were drying up. So times were becoming very, very hard. And the more he thought about it, or the, the more he slept, the more he dreamt, the more he, he saw these, these visions of this beautiful country away to the north. And he told his brothers about, him, about it, and they all became infected with this notion of going there as well. So the, the perfect place, you know, the promised land. So they, they tried to get their father to agree and to come. And eventually he realised he couldn't hold on to them. They had to go. Um, so they built three huge ships. Now he stayed and many of the people stayed there. Um, but Amergan and his brothers built three huge ships and they sailed northwards following Amergan's vision. 
you know you can't you can't see to Ireland from the north of Spain or wherever it was even from from the uh, the north of France so so uh, they had to follow his vision and he, they've sailed north and they went through all kinds of hardships and finally they arrived at, at this island uh, way up on the the east side uh, it's called uh, Inverslana uh, which is probably where Slane is the, the mouth of the river Boyne which is probably no accident because that was you know later was, was one of the sacred rivers of Ireland and Boyne was one of the goddesses uh, we might talk about her another day but they, they, they couldn't land because the people who were there uh, about whom we know not a lot. They were called the Tuatha Dé Danann, the people of, of of the goddess Danu, and they were kind of mythical beings for for these sons of Mill, for these new arrivals, or they became you know for their descendants uh, mythical beings, um, and they they had various arcane powers, and they rushed down they saw this these ships coming and they brought a, a mist and confusion and they couldn't land there so they kept sailing and they they sailed south and then west and they arrived in Munster in West Munster and they came ashore at a place called Inverskeina which is uh, just between West Kerry and, and South Kerry and they made their way ashore there and they they marched inland up the Schlievmish with the at the mountains in in uh, nowadays uh, Corker Green at the Dingle Peninsula and there they met a beautiful queen of the Tuatha Dé Danann uh, with all her attendants and she was called Banba and she was the wife of Macquill the son of the Hazel and uh, Hazel uh, was one of the one of the great properties of ancient Ireland uh, in in the stories because it, it 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 was wealth it was food it was shelter it was everything but anyway she she told them her name was Banba and uh, they moved on to find someone else um, and they they got to um uh, uh, and there they found Fola another beautiful queen and she was the wife of Makecht who is the son of the plough and the plough was another one of these these images one of the main images of, of the people uh, and then they carried on and they came to Ishna uh, the centre of Ireland the navel of Ireland as it was always called uh, and they met Eru the most beautiful of them all with the most followers and attendants and she was she was the wife of Macrania the son of the sun so they were kind of working their way up the hierarchy of of the of the queens, um, the goddesses of this of this land. It's very interesting, and it's um, very archetypal, isn't it? So the first sister represents the hazel, which is nearly a hunter gatherer sort of way of living, because you can eat hazels and you live in the woodlands. Yeah. And then the next sister represents the plow. Yes. So the next stage in our in human development, really. Yeah, and then the third sister Eru represents the sun god. Yes, yeah. which is another development in, yeah. in in human mythology, anyway. And like everywhere else, the Dagda, the sun god, was the the chief god in the Irish panoply. So to be the wife of the son of the of the um, the sun is is the top as high as you can go very very interesting very interesting and they had to work their way up so there's a kind of sense of pilgrimage too they had to work their way through the country yes and of course all this time they're being very gracious and very polite and very um well behaved and you know greeting and it's all very gracious um at this stage anyway we're just here to say hello kind of stuff yeah or to find out what's going on because they could see this country and it was full of Everything you know, the, the, it was covered in, in woodland. Uh, there were deer on the hills. There were boar in the woods. There were salmon leaping in the rivers. There were berries and fruits. So it, it was it was a you know really a promised land, perfect place. There was plenty of room for everyone. So they didn't, they didn't expect to 
to to have to battle for it at this stage. And interesting that they come from a place of drought and perhaps overpopulation, you know, seven brothers trying to all make a space for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And they come to this land of plenty with all these beautiful women. Yes, yeah. And then they arrive at, at Tower, uh, Tara, which is kind of the uh, the fifth province. In Ireland, there there were five provinces, but only four of them are actual. So the, the word in Irish for province is cuigu, which means one-fifth, because Tower or Tara, as it gets translated to, uh, was was a, a province of the mind. It wasn't really a physical province, although there was a place, there is a place. So they arrived at Tower, and there they found three kings, and they were the, the sons of, of Kermit Honeytongue, uh, the sweet the sweet spoken man uh, who had passed on, and his sons were arguing about um, who would control the uh, the land. So they listened for a while to this in amazement, and then they stepped forward and introduced themselves, and said, "Look, you're you know you're not happy. There's room for everyone. Uh, we can all share." But they said, "No, no, we're already fighting over who's who's going to get the at the big share of this. So we we can't let you in." So they agreed that um, the two of the Don and then the, the three sons said, I "Tell you what, if you make an offer, if it's a reasonable offer." Uh, we'll we'll go along with your offer, but if if it's not reasonable, um, and we you know we're sure it will be because you're reasonable people, um, good you know, well-meaning, honourable people. Um, if it's not, we'll bring down all the power of our enchantments and kill you. So so the the uh, the sons of Mill gathered together and had a th- had a thought uh, a talk about it, and they decided they would. They said, "Okay, we'll go back to our boats. We'll get back in the ships, and we'll give you time to prepare because that was part of of the problem for for the sons. They weren't ready to face an invading army, and in those days, in those stories, um, you know, you didn't take advantage of that. So they went. They were going to go back to their ships, and then they would attempt to land. And if they managed to land, they would get the country, all of the country. And if they couldn't, if they were prevented by these three sons, the two of the Dan, and from landing, they would go away, go home, and never come back again." I'm I'm puzzled. I'm trying to make sense of the of why the three brothers would have made such a deal. Were they confident in their own abilities? Oh, they or? were. Yes, yeah. They they were sure they could keep them away. That their enchantment would be would 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 win the day. They had all kinds of arcane powers and um, skills and magic and enchantments and everything. Ah, okay, that makes more sense. So they were kind of like, well, off you go and see yeah. if you can land. Yes, yeah. Okay, but they reckoned without the power of poetry. So what happened? So they went back in, in their ships and the two of the Dan and then, the sneaky devils, they brought down this magic mist and the sons of Mill couldn't find land again. They were attempting to land and it took them seven years or a year and a day or what some magical length of time. It depends on, on, on the story you read. They wandered and wandered and finally... Amergan stood up on the prow of the lead vessel. They managed to stay in contact. Um, and actually during this time, there were storms brought up and everything, and some of them were killed. Um, so, so they were starting to feel a bit annoyed at this stage. But Amergan got up on the prow of the ship and he chanted the first poem that was ever heard in Ireland. And as you know, poetry has great power. So the poem cut through the power of the Tuatha and the mist cleared and they were able to see their way ashore. And that that is to this day remembered as the first the first poem that was ever spoken in Ireland. It's called The Song of Amergan. I'd like to do a version by a wonderful poet, Paddy Bush, who writes in Irish and in English. 
and he's taken the poem. He hasn't really changed it very much, but he's put a really nice um, little schlock on it. <laughs> I don't know what the word would be in English, but anyway, it's called Cushkem Amergan, or the Amergan, the step of Amergan. Setting his right foot on the land, Amergan said, I'm wind on sea, I'm wave swelling, I'm ocean's voice, I'm stag of seven clashes, I'm falcon on cliff, I'm sunlit dewdrop, I'm rarest of herbs, I'm boar enraged, I'm salmon in pool, I'm lake in plain, I'm learning's essence, I'm sharpened spear dealing death, I'm God who kindles fire in the head. Who makes smooth the stony mountain? Who elucidates the lies of the moon? Who proclaims where the sun will rest? Who leads starlit waves like cattle from the ocean? On whom do these starlit waves smile? What troop, what god edges blades in a plague-struck fortress? Keening of weapons, keening of wind. So it's pretty powerful even today. And it's a real incantation, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And in it he's... he makes himself one with, with the land. So he's saying, I am the land. I am Ireland. I am this country. I am the wind. I am the boar. I am the, the, the stag on the hill. I am the wind blowing over the grass. I am the grass. I am the earth. So is that the magic? By identifying himself mm. with the country, he then claims it. That if he becomes the land, then he... Yeah can be part of it. Yes. So he's claiming it by becoming it. Wow. And I'm just thinking in terms of the inbuilt meaning to that then, that poetry had the power to cut through the enchantment. Yes, yeah. So the craft, the wordsmithing and the craft of words. Oh, absolutely. Uh, even for many hundreds of years later in the, in the uh, at the Brehan laws, the legal system that, that, that existed up until the 16th century, there were very strict rules about uh, writing poetry that you couldn't write satires against people because a satire could destroy somebody. So it had to be justified. You had to, a bit like libel laws today, uh, you know, you couldn't just, a poet couldn't just decide, I don't like you, I'm going to write a satire about you. It was governed by, by rules. So, so the power of, of, of the spoken word was enormous, considered enormous by, by these people. The incantation. Yes, yeah. And, you know, in, in some stories they raise, they, they flay the skin off, off a person yeah, with words. Boils and blisters arise and the skin falls off because the, the satire is so strong. Again, I've got the sense of the kind of progression of human culture, that we're going from the hazel trees being the source of life, the plough being the source of life, the sun god, and then the next level that can transcend all of that is poetry and the spoken word. Yeah, yeah. And it's like the evolution of human culture where one thing comes and is more powerful than the thing that went before it. Yes, yeah, very true. And now we're in the age of technology that can kind of cut through all of that. Yes, yeah. yeah. And each each uh, time period believes that its power is, is uh, inviolable and that it's going to endure and then something comes that can cut through it. Yeah. And what happens to the Tuatha Dé Danann then? Well, we'll come to that now. Um, the Sons of Mill needless to say, are somewhat miffed at, the, at their treatment. So they make their way ashore. Um, the mist has dispelled, the storms have calmed, thanks to Amergan's poem. And they, they begin to prepare for, for battle. They make their way to, to a, an area that will be suitable for, for battle, and they prepare themselves. And remember, this is a culture uh, that they're bringing with them that, that is um, 
very warrior based, uh, very, very battle oriented. Um, but it's all about the, the, the panoply, the show. They, the, they prepare themselves, they anoint their bodies, they, they bathe, they, they go to the sweat lodge, they bathe, they anoint themselves with oils. They put lime in their hair to make it stand up, to be very ferocious looking. They put uh, with, with woad, blue, blue dyes and so on. They put arcane symbols all over their naked bodies. Uh, then they show off uh, at the other end of the battleground how good they are by racing back and forth, doing salmon leaps, they're called, and throwing their spear in the air and catching it before it hits the ground tumbling, turning, doing, you know, showing how strong, how quick, how agile they are uh, as their chariots are racing back and forth, driven by their, their chariot driver. They leap out onto the shaft of the, tra- the chariot and turn somersaults and throw their spears in the air and catch it before they've it falls to the ground, all this kind of thing. So the other side are thinking, oh God, I'm not facing him. I'm staying away from that guy. And by the time they, they meet in battle, they're demoralised and they're, you know, so it's not going to be as, as fierce as, as it might have been. So they start doing this. They go into their battle preparations. They get the, the battle lust. They go into a, a sort of berserker style rage. Tuatidhanan, of course, had, had no intention of fighting because they weren't I didn't expect to. So they come floating down down the hill to the battleground, men, women and children, and they're wearing flowing robes of linen and silk or whatever it was they, they used then, uh, scattering flowers before these sons of mill who are gone into their battle rage. The red veil of battle is over their eyes. So they charge back and forth with their spears, their their javelins, their swords, the the crescent blades on their chariot wheels, back and forth, back and forth, until finally... There, there are none left. There's none left of the Tuatha standing or alive, and they come to a halt together, puffing, panting, sweating, covered in blood, and they, as the, as they cool down, both physically and metaphorically, and the the, the mist of anger dissipates and the veils of anger fall from their eyes, they see the destruction and they realised they've done a terrible thing or a dishonourable thing. They've killed unarmed people. They've killed women and children. So they stand around aghast. Uh, but they're quite practical people and they begin to talk about it and Amergan says, look, we, we can't undo this. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll retire for the night, we'll rest, we'll sleep and in the morning we'll get up and we'll go down and gather up all these people and we'll bury them and we'll give them due honour. We'll give them the respect we hadn't shown them in, in the battle and we'll raise a great mound over them and we'll honour that place forever. So they wrap their great cloaks around themselves and they lie down and they go to sleep. And in the morning, the sun is shining and they get up to go down to the battlefield to perform this grisly task. And they find nothing. There's no people, there's no blood. They just find the marks of their horses' hooves, the chariot wheels, the flattened grass of they're mad rushing back and forth and the two of the Donan are gone. So gradually they realise that they have invoked their magic again. They haven't been killed. They have gone into the hollow hills. They've slipped away to another place that we can't see. There's a lovely expression uh, that uh, that's used for for this, that they, they, the two of the Donan, they turned sideways to the sun. So they're there, but they're not quite visible.
But at midsummer and at Halloween, the two big mid-year festivals, turning festivals, uh, the veils between the worlds are at their thinnest. So that's when you'll see them most. So the two of the Danann became the she, the fairy folk of Ireland. So the she are this noble, tall, beautiful race of people with their kings and their queens and their warriors and so on. And they live in the hollow hills is, is what, what they were, it always was, was called, but basically at another, in another dimension, which is not always visible to us unless we were, you know, we mere humans, we sons are uh, descendants of, of the sons of Mill, unless we can, we're, we're more empathetic, maybe more aware of these kind of things or when the veils are at their thinnest. And that's why at Halloween, uh, and at midsummer, you'd you'd be more likely to see them. So they're there all the time, but they haven't gone away. But they're not part of our world. So they're here, but we can't see them. Yes. Because after the battle, after the violence and the aggression of the yes. sons of Meal, they slipped into another dimension. Exactly. Mm. And their memory was honoured, like right up until until very recently, you know, when, when you go through the collections, the folklore collections that were collected in the 1930s and, and even a bit later. But there, were, there was huge respect for, for those folk, for the Shi, uh, you know, the people of, of the Shi, the people at the two of the Danon. In the 19th century, you know, as, as the 20th century wore on, they became more and more reduced to fairies and fairy tales and, you know, little elfy things but uh, in the minds of people they were much more noble and fearsome and something to, to be feared but also to be to be respected and honoured I know from some of the folklore that if you fell asleep in the wrong place or at the Absolutely. wrong time of year yes, yeah. you could end up in the dimension with the, yes, sea, with the yeah. she Yes and at Halloween uh, we always used to jump the bonfire and the the risk of jumping the bonfire or the thrill of jumping the bonfire for me was that you 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 might jump into their world uh, and not be in this one uh, fairy thorns as well have a have a strong um in in Irish they're, they're called bright trees not not fairy trees but they're gyal the brightness uh, and they mark the doorway to their uh, their realm so some, sometimes if you if you went there you could you could slip into their realm. If, if you sat down under the thorn tree, the hawthorn or the blackthorn tree, whichever it was, uh, you might wake up, they might slip you into their world. Wow. Or going into fairy forts as yes, well. Yes, yeah. The, the, the rats, the rings, the circle enclosures, the ruins of which dot the country more than any other uh, archaeological remains, they're, they're still very strongly associated with, with uh, the Tua de Dan and the, the she. And my own memories of what would happen to you if you slipped into that other world were that there was a potential for sort of wonderful wealth and experience and music and gold, but also a real element of mischievous and mischievousness and risk. Like you might not be able to come back. Yes. Yeah. Or there, there's, you know, there are many, many stories of people who go in and come back um, and, and various things happen. There, there's one um, of, a, of a, a fiddle pair um, and he was heading home after a, a wedding or some big Hooli, and uh, he hears he's going past the the fort, known as as a fairy fort, and he hears music. So he knows that they're they're in there. The she are playing. So he sneaks up and he's listening to try and learn some new tunes. And uh, of course they know he's there. So immediately he's grabbed and he's thrown in in front of the queen, who's there in the middle, the beautiful woman, and he's terrified. And they know exactly who he is. They know him by name, and they ask him what he's doing there. So 
terrified he tells him I was just listening you know you know me I'm, I'm harmless I'm just just a, a fiddle player I just wanted to learn some some new tunes so they said so she looks at him and she realizes that there's no harm he wasn't doing anything bad so she says well we'll we'll let you go if um if you if you promise to play for us tonight so he said I'd like nothing better so he joins in with the with the group who are playing and he takes out his fiddle and he starts playing and he teaches them some of his tunes and he learns lots of theirs and they play and play for hours and hours and finally he's exhausted and he falls asleep and when he wakes up it's full morning and of course there's no sign of anyone and he heads off home and he's humming all the new tunes he's learned in his head and when he gets to his house it's just a ruin nettles growing through it and trees over it and someone comes along and says oh my god it's you you've been gone for so long and it's he's gone for 50 years or some period of time uh, and from then on of course he's famous because he has all these wonderful tunes and he was the man who disappeared and came back looking 50 years later looking exactly the same age wow it's it, they were wonderful stories to capture a sense of living alongside ancient magic yes yeah that if we are the kind of descendants of the sons of Meal, we're here and we're living life on one dimension, the one that we were all agreed to see and understand. But here in Ireland, in the landscape, through certain portals, there's a way into yes, this yeah. other magical yes. world <laughs> that is coexisting alongside us. Yes, exactly. That, yes, yeah. That we can slip into. Yeah. If we're lucky or... Or not so lucky. Or not so. It depends, yeah. Depends, yeah. And I like the association there that that's where the great music comes from as well. So he gets these wonderful songs yes, by slipping yeah. into the other dimension. Yeah. There, there was a lovely story from... Uh, not a story, a lovely uh, event that happened um, when the the folklore collectors were travelling the country and into Scotland and the Isle of Man. They collected vast amounts of uh, of stories, poetry, music, dance, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's all in this national uh, collection in Ireland. It's a wonderful resource. But when they were travelling, there was one woman who gave a lot of stories uh, about the fairy folk, about the she. And she's telling all these stories. But she's a bit aware that as she's telling the stories and the man is, is, is writing them down or recording them on the wax cylinders and is, is very um, eager to, uh, to get the stories, that it's not really done anymore to tell these stories. You know, this is in the 1930s or 40 or so. I'm not sure when exactly it was. And she's telling him and the stories. And then he, he, she kind of pauses and he asks her, do you believe in, in the fairy folk? And, he, and she says, oh, no, no, of course I don't. But they're there. And I think that really represents the way most of us in Ireland feel. <laughs> I don't believe them, but they're there. Wow, that's wonderful. That's a perfect um, encapsulation of the Irish Isn't attitude to yes. these things. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that um, is in my mind is that is how you address them or how you speak of them, because it's my understanding that you're not supposed to, you're supposed to call them the good people. You're you not are, supposed yes. to yeah. use the words that you've used to describe them. But you're I'm not supposed to. I mean, I think in a story, there's kind of a, a, a license to because you have to tell them but when you're talking about them in normal life you, you use euphemisms like the good the good folk the others the you know but the she is what they're called so that's fine you know they're they're the people but you shouldn't call race. them you shouldn't call them fairies you shouldn't you know that's only that's only a new thing um i think yates was one of the first to to use that word with a f-a-e-r-y it was it was very Vict i suppose late victorian or edwardian or something but uh those kind of stories began to appear then and in a fae kind of way you know 
but out of respect, you're supposed to say, you, 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 well, I would have thought you you called them the good people. The good people, yes. Yeah, yeah. the good people. Yeah, and, and they, they, would, they always hear you. It was one of the reasons why people weren't, uh, praise was never given uh, unless they said, uh, God bless us or made some reference to God. Because if this praise was given, uh, the she would hear like about a child being um, wonderful and they might decide to take that child and replace it with, with a facsimile, uh, a changeling as they were called. It's quite an ambivalent relationship, isn't it, between the sons of Meal, us and the um, people that we displace, the good yes, people who yeah. are living. There's both all these riches that they have to offer, but there's a sense of, there's potential malevolence there, isn't there it? There is, well? definitely, yes, yeah. You'd want to be careful of yeah. them and not offend them and pay them due respect. Exactly, you would. And the changing thing is a big thing, the idea that they might switch children, healthy children for exactly, yes. demons. And, and that was the reason that, that boys, um, small boys, when they were toddlers, up to the age of five or six, they, they never had their hair cut and they always wore a kind of a pinafore, just like the girls, so they couldn't be told you know, apart. Uh, and that was, of course, because in those days... Uh, it was more valuable to have a boy than to have a girl because a boy would 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 do the would farm and a girl you had to provide a dowry for so you know uh, economically it was a bit of a, a drawback um so so they wanted to uh, they didn't want to lose their boys so they dressed them all the same so the the she would be um in some way confused and, and wouldn't take the value <laughs> yes, of the child yeah. yes so there is a sense of living alongside somebody who isn't necessarily um well, on your side. But I wonder, is that intergenerational, ancient ancestral guilt for whatever the incoming yeah. tribe did to the yeah. existing people? Yeah. Yes. It's like, if we don't honour their memory now or the magic of them now, then they'll, they're going to get us back. Yeah, it's true. I also wonder, in a, in a modern take on it, that by understanding the kind of the landscape as inhabited by these animate beings with consciousness, it then creates a scenario where you have to have respect for that landscape. Exactly. So yes, if, yeah. if the good people are living in the mounds and hills of Ireland and the, the trees are sacred to them, then you can't just go around willy-nilly doing whatever you want oh, absolutely, with it. absolutely. Uh, a neighbour of ours just last year told us a story of when he was young. He and his brothers, uh, they had a, a JCB, an earth-moving digging machine, and one of his brothers was hired by a local man to, to come to his farm to dig up uh, a fort, one of these ring forts, the fairy forts, as they're, as they're called, a rath, um, to, uh, to remove it so that he could you know, use the, the the land. And our friend tried to tell his brother this crazy, very dangerous, foolish thing to do. But the brother, you know, he was going to get paid well. But it obviously affected him a little bit. But uh, on the day of the of the deed, the deed was to be done. Um, our friend went up with his brother uh, to, to try and talk him out of it again. And when the, the brother drove into the field in his big machine, um, he stopped for a moment and the machine cut out and he just couldn't start it again. So he realised he was being given a warning. So he didn't do it. Wow. And this man told us this story and that's the way it is. That's the way it was. That's the way it happened. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And I've heard similar stories. Mm. So there's enough belief there for people not to want to risk it. Exactly. I know of one one farm up in, in Clare uh, and a man, he was a returned yank, they called him, uh, you know, when they went away and they, they did well in America and then they came back with money. And he came back to improve the farm and he bought a couple of neighbouring small farms and he was hiring all the local men to to work for him. Uh, so they were all very impressed by him, this man who'd done so well. But one thing about him was that he had this beautiful white leather trench coat thing 
that you'd only get in America, you'd only see in the films. So they, they really admired that and thought it was it was wonderful. But he had them out working one day in the field and um, there was a, a thorn, a, a tree there, and they asked him to, he said, here, cut that down, we want to get that out of the way. And someone said, well, that's, that's the, the fairy thorn. And he said, oh, come on. You know, I've been in America, I've seen all this stuff, I've made, you know, now you're being peasants. And he said, well, I, you know, whatever, um, you do it. So he said, I will. So he took a saw and he sawed off a branch and it was hot and the coat was a bit heavy on him. So he took off the coat and he hung the white coat, the beautiful white leather trench coat on the stump that he'd cut. And then he, he went down lower in the tree and he started cutting and cutting. And then next thing he fell over, had terrible pain down his left side and they carried him home and he died that night of a of heart attack. And nobody said that the she had killed him, the fairy folk had killed him, but his beautiful white leather trench coat that they all admired and desired so much hung on the stump of the tree until it rotted. So nobody would touch it? Nobody touched it. No one went near it. Well, I don't think I'll be cutting down any (laughs) any thorn trees anytime soon. Don't. Why risk it? Why risk it? Absolutely. Um, I don't believe in them, but they're there. (laughs) I don't believe in them, but they're there. No, I wouldn't even say that I don't believe no, in them. No, I wouldn't either. Yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't want to say that out loud. Yeah. Uh, I do believe in them and they probably are there. Yeah. It, they're a wonderful set of stories. And it does, funnily enough, for me, really explain something about what it means to be Irish. Because we started off by saying this idea of where did we come from and why are we here and why are we the way we are? Yeah. Well, there's something about those stories that explains something to me about my own psyche, which has got this sense of living alongside something magical. Yes, yeah. And I think a lot of Irish people do have that. I yes. Mean, we have that sense that there's something else just out of the corner of our vision. Yeah. And we need to have that for so many reasons. One, like a very basic one is if we don't respect the earth, we're, you know, we're doomed to destroy it, you know, with global warming, for instance, or just cutting down everything or bringing in monoculture, you know, we have to, we have to feel there's, there's something bigger than we are. Yeah. And without getting too political about it or even local political about it, there's so much rock breaking going on in our beautiful landscape at the moment. These big machines are breaking up what would have been seen as very poor land and turning it into grazing. But the landscape's been totally transformed. It is. yeah. Yeah. Without any sense of it having any value as itself. Yes. It's just something to be shaped into a nice green flat field. Yeah. yeah. It's a very different mindset. I don't think anybody would have been doing that 100 years ago, even no. if they had the equipment. Yeah, exactly. Even yeah. 50. Yeah. yeah. Things are changing. Thank you, Paul. What a whole, there's a real uh, cornucopia of stories today. I feel like we really, there's been a real richness in all the story. Well, there would have to be when you think of, of the Irish and the way, the way we are and we have been for these hundreds of years. There's so much there's music, there's poetry, there's fighting, there's everything, you know. So, And there's living alongside the unseen magic. And there's also the storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a, that's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Into the Mythic is made possible by the generous support of Wild Goose Studios, a family-owned craft studio based in Kinsale, County Cork.